everyone. Welcome back to the CTYA podcast. We are so glad that you joined us here today. Sit back, relax, get out your favorite pencil, your favorite notebook. May you be blessed in the Lord. excited about what the Lord is going to do. Um, I know I have, um, I'm tasked with kind of the same subject as Brother Carson covered on Sunday. I was not here on Sunday. I was preaching elsewhere, so I did not listen to his message. So uh, hopefully we've diversified it enough that it will be uh, new and fresh. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes this evening on the subject beyond Pentecost, the heart of the matter. Now, we all know the story of the day of Pentecost. We learned it probably, many of us as young children, I know in Bible quizzing as a kid at CCS, we quoted it, we learned it. In fact, my first year in Bible quizzing, we did the book of Acts, and um, uh, I was probably third or fourth grade and uh, learned this particular chapter verbatim. The Bible says, and when the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then it goes on to say that there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And we know what followed. We know that they went out into the streets. We know that Peter preached this pivotal message that was the foundation of the early apostolic church. We know that... um, all of the different people that had came to visit the city heard the message that was being preached and um, heard it in their own tongue and heard the apostles glorifying God in their own languages. And um, the day of Pentecost actually comes from the word, a word that means 50 in the Greek. It's actually the Greek terminology for the Hebrew uh, festival of weeks or the festival of harvest. It's Shavuot in the Hebrew. And, uh, It was one of the three ancient festivals that required a pilgrimage into Jerusalem. Um, The others were, of course, the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, or or the Feast of Booths. And then the third was, of course, the Feast of Weeks. Uh, The Passover, uh, the the day of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, happened about 50 days after the, the time of the Passover. And so you would have had a massive group of people in Jerusalem at this point in time. Now, the main purpose of that particular festival was to worship God for his providence, for his provisions, for the fact that he had allowed the harvest to come one more time. Because in an agricultural society where they're very dependent upon uh, the crops that are being grown and a drought, they didn't have irrigation systems like they have now. They didn't have plains that could bring in water to help fortify the crops if there was an issue or if a drought came. So they had to depend upon God. And so when they began the last of the harvesting, which was the harvest of the wheat, they would take the first fruits of the wheat and they would offer it up to God and offer up leavened bread to him, two waves, loaves of fine flour baked with leaven, as it says in Luke, in Leviticus 23, 17. Now, many years later, about 150 AD, it became, began to become identified also with the giving of the law by Moses at Mount Sinai, but that was never part of the scriptural prescription for the day of Pentecost or for uh, the festival of weeks. 
So what was the significance? The significance was God's provision. And it was a time of worship for the blessings of the harvest. It was a place which was, a, and they returned to the place where God had chosen to place his name. They uh, were instructed to worship because they were no longer bondmen. And Jerusalem would have been jam-packed at this moment. And there are a couple of quick points before I go on and talk about beyond Pentecost that I want to point out about this, this passage in Acts chapter 2. For one thing, there, there were represented there people from every nation under heaven. This is indicative of God's eternal plan. A unified church of both Jew and Gentile is what God had planned from the dawn of time. We know going all the way back to the Old Testament precedent, God had provided a way for Gentiles to become proselytes into the Jewish faith. Now, the Jews failed to uh, fulfill their purpose and to be light to the Gentile nations. And that's why in Isaiah 9, chapter 9, it says that there's going to be a light that shines in those nations. And there's going to be a light that comes and brings brings those things that are in darkness and those people that are in darkness into the light. And we see this begin to become fulfilled when Christ is lifted up on the cross of Calvary. He says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me, not just you, not just those of the covenant, not just those that are children of Abraham, but all Jew, Gentile, people from every nation under heaven. Now, of course, those that were in Jerusalem for this festival were primarily Jews, but they were from every nation under heaven and they had made the pilgrimage. This means that, that of those thousands that got the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, when it spread from the upper room where there were just over 100 into the streets, we know that there were people that were filled with the Holy Ghost that then most likely began to take the message to their home countries. You see, God's purpose was always to have a unified church. The Bible says that they were in one accord and one in place. So not only was his eternal plan for a unified church of Jew and Gentile, but it was also for a church that would subside in unity. What do I mean by that? I mean, we have to be unified. We have to be of one heart and of one mind in order to accomplish what God has purposed for this generation. If we want to see revival, we have to be unified together. We have to be of one mind and of one purpose. You know, one of the biggest and most tragic things that I think oftentimes happens in our churches is that, that the New Testament writer talks about the fact that you know, we all have diversification of gifts and we all have different purposes within the body of Christ and everyone is called to ministry. Now, that doesn't mean everyone is called to a pulpit or called to, to pick up a mic and sing or play a guitar or play drums, but it means everyone is called to ministry. Everyone is called to home Bible studies, to, to a ministry of prayer, to a ministry of witnessing. Everyone is called to ministry. And yet, so often in the church, when people begin to falter and people begin to struggle, we oftentimes, God forbid, but oftentimes I've seen that we've, we think it's easier just to, to, to cut off the diseased limb, just to, 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 to cut the foot off and amputate it instead of binding up the wounds and instead of trying to help people through the, the struggles of life. But scripture says we're to bind one another's burdens. It says we're supposed to bear one another's burdens, and that's how we fulfill the law of Christ. That's part of the Holy Ghost, what the Holy Ghost demands, is that when we're unified, we care about one another. We love one another. We have compassion one for another. And we're unified in what God desires to do. Then it says that a rushing mighty wind filled that upper room where they were sitting. And man, I wish I could spend some time here because this is so much fun to get into. But I'm, I'm going to hesitate. I'm going to try to my very best to be good. Y'all that have had me in class know it sometimes does not work. Um, try as I might, sometimes I get a little too hyper. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. This word in the Hebrew is uh, neshama, means 
literally breath of life. It means wind. When God breathed into Adam the breath of life, he breathed into him physical life, but also the potentiality for spiritual life, for relationship with his creator. Furthermore, we find that the other primary word that is used in the Old Testament, ruach, that is used in connection with the breath that ex we exhale from our lungs and inhale, is the same word that is also translated as wind and a spirit. Now flip over to the New Testament. I know I'm going through this a little quickly because this isn't the primary point, but it's just a lot of fun. So bear with me. Flip over to the New Testament. John chapter 3, we have Jesus talking to Nicodemus at night. And what does he say? He says that you must be born again of the water and the spirit. And then he begins to talk about the spirit. And he said, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. Canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the spirit. Now that word for wind there is the same word that is translated as spirit in just a verse prior and later on in the same verse. Why? Because the, the, the Greek word pneuma also means wind, breath, or spirit. So why am I bringing this up? Because there's a purpose to the fact that the wind came into the upper room. It was prophesied by Jesus Christ to Nicodemus. It was prophesied by Joel when he said that in the last days, saith God, I'm going to pour out of my spirit, my ruach, my breath, my air upon all flesh. And your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Your young men are going to see visions and your old men are going to dream dreams in Joel chapter 2, 28, 29, which is, of course, the same message that was preached in Acts 2, 16 and 17 on the day of Pentecost. So when God breathed into Adam the breath of life, he gave him physical life and the potentiality for spiritual life. When, when God's ultimate plan as the creator of the universe was to robe himself in flesh and through the work that took place on the cross at Calvary was to allow not just physical life, but to give us spiritual life. So we're buried with him in baptism. We repent and we're buried with him in baptism, but we have no breath in our lungs when we come up out of that water. It's not until his spirit comes, the breath of God comes and fills our lungs that we begin to breathe and have spiritual life. You know, I remember as a small kid going down the waters of baptism, um, five years old, and I remember coming up out of the water, and I don't know what sins I had at that point, but everything felt cleaner and everything felt fresh, and the air felt like it, it felt a little bit different when I breathed it in. But man, 13 years old when I got the Holy Ghost, Jesus, when I got the Holy Ghost and spoke in a heavenly language for the entirety of the service at church camp and an hour or two after service, I couldn't speak anything in anything but a heavenly language. And guess what? It was a complete and total transformation, friends. It wasn't just everything felt clearer and everything felt fresher. I felt radically different. I remember walking in to my little desk at, at, in my, I almost said upper room. Play on words there, that's not what I meant. I, I was the only one with the room on the upper level of the house, and I, I walked in, and I sat down at my little desk, and I was learning Mark and Bible quizzing that year, and I started reading the parable of the sower, and I remember, okay, I was, y'all that know me know I am a nerd to the extreme, so I had, I had 11, 12 years old, had my a couple of commentaries, and so I, I would sit down with my Matthew Henry's commentary and read through scripture and try to comprehend Matthew Henry's commentary. is not the best commentary, in case you wonder. Not academic at all, but that's okay. It was a start. I grew from there. Thank you, Jesus. Glory be to God in the highest. Um, but that being said, I remember I would sit down with it, and I would try to understand, and I really felt like I was comprehending scripture. And man, after I got the Holy Ghost returned back to that little desk and began reading that parable of the sower, I remember my eyes just feeling like they were opened. 
And suddenly I began to connect with Scripture in a way that I hadn't previously. And it began to prick my heart and it began to move me and it began to shape me. Why? Because that's what the breath, the wind, the Spirit of God does. It shifts you, it changes you, it transforms you. So then there appeared to them cloven tongues like as a fire. And oh my goodness, I'm trying to go through this quickly. What does this symbolize? It symbolizes the presence of God and spiritual purification. Go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 and when God... The Yahweh, the great I am, appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He appeared in the fire. Just like he appeared as the, in the fort, as the fourth man in the fire to the three Israelite children. It was symbolic of the presence, not of the third person of the Godhead. Right. Not of a third individual or a spirit that had to be commissioned by the Father and or the Son. But it was symbolic of the very presence of that great I am. That very God who was the creator of the universe. Furthermore... We know that in scripture, as well as in science, which we're not going to get into, and in, in terms of uh, um, metallurgy and all of that, we know that, that fire brings about purification. Peter talks about it. He talks about being tried with fire and coming out of pure gold, right? So what does the Holy Spirit do? do? It, it, it's symbolic of the presence of God, the presence of God that isn't just dwelling on you because the fire wasn't just dwelling on them. God's presence was taking up residence within them. See, in the Old Testament context, the Spirit would come upon them in measure to accomplish a mighty, a mighty deed or a mighty work. It would come upon the prophet in order to allow him to prophesy. It would come upon the judge or upon Samson to allow him to accomplish a mighty feat, but it did not dwell within. But now the Holy Spirit is going to dwell within, and dwelling within as God's presence, dwelling within us, it's going to be a purifying force. It is going to purify our ways, our human wisdom, going to purify our thoughts, and our mechanisms and the way that we conduct ourselves in life, it's going to completely transform. You see, the catalyst for transformation is that original burying in, in the waters of baptism, the cleansing of all impurities. But when we come back out of that water, we've got to have something to purify us from that day forward. We don't have to go back to the waters of baptism every time we make a mistake, right? Scripture is very explicit about that. But what we do have to do is we have to tap into that Holy Spirit that dwells within us and say, God, have your way in this heart of mine. What does Jeremiah say? He says that the heart is desperately wicked above all things who can know it. Yes. Yet Proverbs tells us that we're to keep our hearts with all diligence. What gives? How do we keep our heart if we can't even know it? Man, that's a conundrum, right? I've been there before where I've thought I've kept my heart with all diligence, but I ended up doing more damage than good. Because I kept things at bay that God wanted to, to change in my life. Through my own ignorance, my own human wisdom that was faulty at its, at its basis and at its source and at its foundation. So, so what does that mean? It means that we have to say, God, have your way in this heart of mine. There may be things in me that are completely neutral, that are not, that are not sins and are not things that are blessings, but that will take me from your presence, take me from your will, take me from your purpose in my life. And I don't care what it is. I need you to strip it away. You know, I talk about this oftentimes in my class, but we are really great at dealing with sin as though it were dandelions growing in our yard. We go through and mow, and what happens? It looks great, right? Picture of beauty. Couldn't, if you were a landscape artist, you could not make it look any better, at least in your own head. We won't ask the real landscape uh, artist, but, and yes, there is such a thing. Um, but what happens the very next day? The dandelions pop back up, right? We deal with sin, but we do not oftentimes deal with the issues that create sin. Yeah. Why? Because we do not know what dwells within our heart. 
Solzhenitsyn talks about the fact that there's a line that's dividing good and evil in our hearts, and, and it's difficult for us to recognize what is evil in order to destroy it, because we have to destroy a piece of our own heart. And sometimes that which will lead us to evil is not that which is necessarily sin in and of itself. It's emotions. It's pains. It's bitterness. It's frustrations. It's it's things that you've wrestled with, things from childhood, things from relationships that get down deep into your heart and begin to change you from what God would desire for you to be. That means you can't just mow the lawn and, and get rid of the dandelions. You've got to give you access to the Holy Spirit to touch and to move and to shape and to mold every aspect of your heart. Furthermore, it says that they were filled with the Holy Ghost. What does this mean? Again, they didn't just have temporary empowerment, but they were filled in order to live lives of victory. But what are the implications? Because you see, oftentimes we leave the story in the book of Acts. Oftentimes we leave the story on the day of Pentecost and we rejoice over what took place and we rejoice over the sinner that's been saved and we rejoice when the little child speaks in tongues and is filled with his spirit. But, but friends, we can't leave it on the day of Pentecost. I got the Holy Ghost when I was 13 years old and if I had, had continued living the way that I was living, if I had continued allowing myself to be conformed to this world and to the image of the spirit of the age, then guess what? I would never have been able to, to do what God had called me to do. I never would have been what he created me to be. I never would have lived up to my full potential. But we have to recognize that the Holy Ghost is not just for the first time believer. It's not just for you when you're eight years old and you approach an apostolic altar for the first time. It's not just for you when you walk in the doors of a church as a 22 or 23 year old and raise your hands and get the Holy Ghost for the first time. It is for you every day of your life because it is a transformative force. Now, what does, what does, what does Jesus himself say about the spirit? He talks about the fact that, okay, let's just pause here for a minute. Again, bear with me because I, I love the ones that got it. So it's, it's just going to happen. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's who I am. I love doctrine. I love theology. So sometimes I'll go down those fun paths. Most of the time I'll remember where I'm going. Occasionally I'll get lost on the way. Usually I can figure out how to get back. Usually. Uh, pray for me. No, I'm just joking. So the question is, how did they turn the world upside down? What were the implications? Well, Jesus talked specifically about what the spirit was. It was the spirit of truth. You see, the one who was the way, the truth, and the life who pointed the Israelites that he talked to the, to the fact that the God of the Old Testament was the God of truth and the God of light and that there was no light or no truth outside of the God of the Old Testament. Then he came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he said, the spirit of truth is going to come. And when the spirit of truth comes, it's going to lead and to guide you into all truth. What does that mean? It means that if I want to know how to live my life, if I want to understand what lens to use to, to view my world, if I want to understand what is right and what is wrong, then I better tap in to that spirit of truth. Because guess what? Not everything is explicitly outlined in Scripture. Hello, not everything is explicitly outlined in Scripture. I've never seen anywhere in Scripture anything said about smoking pot. There's principles. There's definitely principles, so don't walk out of here saying Sister Mass says you can... No, 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 no. Let's just get ahead of this before, before it gets out of control. <laughs> no comments from some of you that know the faux pas I've made in classes. Um, but it does not say that explicitly in Scripture. But there are principles that guide. You see... Uh, oh, goodness. Okay, quick illustration. 
I think we have time, maybe. If not, we'll just shorten it. Um, Lost City of Z, great book, fun book. Very enjoyable. Um, the guy's an evolutionist, so you have to bear with that, but it's lots of science, lots of history, lots of exploration and adventure, um, historical uh, narrative. A fun book, but it talks a little bit about the founding of the Royal Geographic Society. And there's a specific man, I don't have the notes here, didn't plan on going here, apologize, I don't remember his name, but that taught a class to the young explorers that would get their verification to be part of the Royal Geographic Society, okay? And his claim to fame, so to speak, was that any student who passed through the doors of his class and was able to pass the class would be able to figure out the latitude and longitude of anywhere that they were dropped off in the world. Now that seems like, okay, big deal. I don't know about you, but I get lost everywhere I go. Thank God for GPS. Literally was in DC and walked about four city blocks to get in the other side of a building that was across the street from the building that I started out in. True story, it's bad, it's rough. Um, when I take a road trip, I, I need prayers if, 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 I, if the GPS doesn't work. So um, he, he taught them to figure out the latitude and longitude of wherever they were at. Well, what is the purpose of that? Well, you've got to understand that the founding of the Royal Geographic Society, there were still maps that said there'd be dragons. I wish there were dragons. Dragons would be pretty cool, fire breathing, you know, smog, um, all that good stuff. <laughs> um, which one was it uh, that got turned into a, was it, it was Eustace in Chronicles of Narnia that got turned into a dragon. Um, but it would be cool, there aren't dragons of course, but there was, why did I mention that? Because the reality was there was a large part of the world that was completely unexplored. There were no maps, there were no field guides, you couldn't pick up a field book and say, okay, this snake is fine, uh, he's not going to hurt me, this one is deadly, can't touch it. This plant I can eat, and it'll give me sustenance, this one is going to cause me to die a horrific death. There was nothing, nothing at all, right? So. The purpose of understanding the latitude and longitude of where you currently stand is that if you know your latitude and longitude, you can figure out how to get to the nearest safe place. So if you know you're here and the safe place is here, you're going to know to move in this direction and moving in this direction is going to cause you to perhaps die a horrific death, right? Just to put it in, in simple terms. Folks, we live in a society that is moving at the speed of light. If we approach ministry and we approach life as though we are going to have the answer to every question that comes and we're going to know exactly how to approach every situation and going to know exactly which things are going to harm us and draw us from God's presence and which things are going to draw us nearer to him, we are going to fall short. We're going to be a day late and dollar short, to use a great idiom there. So what does that mean? It means that when we get into complex places and we don't know what to do, what do we do? We're going to figure out the latitude and longitude of where we currently stand. And we're going to say, okay, what can I pull from scripture? When I pray to God, what is he impressing upon my heart? What is the Holy Spirit telling me to do? And I may not understand how to handle this situation, but I know if I move in this direction, I'm going to be moving closer to his presence. I understand that if I follow the leading of the Holy Ghost, I'm going to be making the right decisions that are going to keep me in covenant with God as opposed to those that are going to draw me from his presence and make me the prey of the predator. We okay with that? So it is the spirit of truth. It's going to lead us and guide us into all truth. Furthermore, the Holy Ghost is a teacher who's going to quicken our mind and help us to better understand all that God would want you to understand. It can helps us to connect our head and our heart. 
It links together God's word with the reality of the human experience. See, that's the beautiful thing about having his spirit. When I read and I have his spirit dwelling within me, I'm not bringing my experiences to the Bible and allowing my experiences to inform how I translate or how I understand scripture, but I'm bringing myself with all the imperfections, all the insecurities, all the brokenness, all of the sins that I've committed in my life, all of my experiences, both good and bad, and I'm saying, God, let your word define me. Let your word tell me how to live. Let your spirit begin to guide me. Let your spirit prick my heart as I begin to read through scripture so that I know what to do, how to move forward, how to hear your voice, and how to know you. You see, oftentimes we pause in prayer and we say that we're waiting on the Lord, but how often do we pause when we're reading through scripture and allow God to speak? How often do, when God, when God pricks our heart with something in scripture, how often do you pick up the pen and begin to write? How often do you begin to record those words? How often when he pricks your heart do you, perhaps, I, I, I several years back started having a place in the back of one of my journals where as, God, as I read through scripture and God pricked my heart about things, I would write down specific prayers that I would integrate into my, into my prayer life for that coming week, and I would consistently kind of talk, go back to those, to those verses I'd written down and those, those moments where God had touched my heart and, and make sure that I was still in alignment. Folks, his spirit is what allows you to connect your heart and mind to this precious book in a way that is going to be an anchor for your soul through the storms of life, no matter what problems come, no matter what situations arise, no matter what you come up against in life, it's going to help anchor you so that you can stay steadfast and movable. So that one day when that trumpet sounds, you will rise to meet him because your heart is going to be right with him when your heart is, 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 has gone through the filter of his spirit and gone through the filter of his word. Furthermore, we see that the Holy Ghost is, is called to reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, this word reprove in the Greek, it, it, it speaks about exposing to conviction or bringing something that is dark into the light of day. So it, I, I recognize the context of this verse, and I'm not going to go into the context because it refers specifically to what happened at the cross. But the reality remains the same, that it also deals with what happens within the heart of a Christian who is filled with his spirit. It's going to reprove the sin in our life. How many times have you done something? Perhaps you didn't even consider it a huge sin. Perhaps it was a slip of the tongue. Perhaps it was a moment of anger or a moment of frustration. And immediately God checked your heart. Immediately God checked your spirit. Why? Because when you're in covenant with him, he's going to keep pulling you his direction. He's going to keep drawing you closer to his heart. Friends, this is why it's so important to pray. The longer we spend away from God's presence, the more difficult it becomes to hear his voice and to recognize his presence. You know, oftentimes when someone passes away or when you lose somebody in your life, you crave to hear their voice one more time. Yeah. And, and it, it feels like you forget what they look like. You forget what they felt like. You forget what they sounded like. Folks, the same is true about being in the presence of God. When we don't walk in his presence every day, when we don't spend time saying, Holy Spirit, refine me, do what you desire to do in my life, we're not going to hear his voice. We're going to become callous to his presence. We're going to become callous to his voice to where we no longer hear when he is beckoning and when he is calling. Furthermore, it reproves righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Why is he convict us of righteousness? Because we all struggle with our own self-righteousness, with our own filthy pride. Where the righteousness which scripture says are, is simply like filthy rags. 
So when we get into the presence of God and we see his glory and his majesty, his utter perfection, when we recognize his holiness, we recognize just how far we have to go. This is why James says when we look into a mirror, all we have to compare ourselves against is ourselves. And we can say, man, we're looking really good because I'm better than I was yesterday. Because I'm better than so-and-so. Because I'm not making the same mistakes they're making. But he said, get rid of the mirror and look into that perfect law of liberty. What is that perfect law of liberty? It is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. It is the one who came to bring freedom and life to all of humanity. That is the perfect law of liberty. So how do we figure out where we should be and what we should be doing? We look at that one who is utter perfection. We look at that one who in his holiness took on the flesh of humanity and took in his own body our sins and bore them to the tree of Calvary for you and for me. Yes. You see, when I think about Calvary, it's, it's utterly awe-inspiring. It's completely devastating because I recognize that my God, my King of Kings hung in my place. I should have been the one that went to the cross of Calvary. I should have been the one that died and paid the penalty for my sins, but my God took my place. He not only took my place, but he lived a life of sinless perfection so that he could come out of that tomb on resurrection morning, so that he could accomplish all that he had set out to accomplish, which was the salvation, the potentiality for the salvation of all of humanity, which means I can walk in the spirit. I can walk in newness of life, which means you don't have to live according to the depravity of the flesh. You don't longer have to live with carnality, which is the enemy of God, but you can live in his spirit, walking in his spirit, walking in covenant with him, empowered by him to live victoriously. Now, uh, I'm going to try to skip through some of this last part quickly. Um, we know that in Jeremiah, Je Jeremiah prophesied that he would put, God would put the law in the inner word parts and write it in their hearts and he would be a God to his people, and he, they, he would call his people by his name. The law was good. There was nothing wrong with the Old Testament law. But the problem with the Old Testament law was that it brought the reality of immorality. It brought to the forefront the fact that there is a right and there is a wrong. And because of that, it caused it awakened within humanity a desire for that which was forbidden. You know, if you have a, if you have a little kid playing on the floor... Um, I have a cousin who has a little, a little foster boy right now, and he, he loves food. He's three years old. And you bring out the food, and he goes, oh, it's hysterical. doesn't matter what he's playing. He is all about the food. In fact, sometimes he picks up his pork and his spoon and does, goes ambidextrous on us and, and does both at one time. Kid can eat like a grown man. So little guy's down on the floor playing with his cars and playing with his PJ mask and get going and all of that. He's just having a grand old time, not thinking about food, not thinking about anything. But you walk in the room and you have a brand new box of Oreos, brand new package of Oreos. And you say, buddy, you can't have any Oreos until dinner. You better believe that kid is going to get those Oreos. He's going to climb Mount Everest to get those Oreos. He's going to go down any stairs, up any mountain. He's going to do whatever he has to do to get those orders because suddenly he wants something that he didn't even know he wanted. A desire was awoken within him. That's what, in essence, the law did. It gave prohibitions which caused people to say, huh, I never thought about that. doesn't make the law bad. The law was good. 
The law pointed them towards God, but it did not provide a solution. But God provided a solution when he robed himself in flesh. God provided a solution when he allowed his spirit to be poured out on the day of Pentecost because his law would be written in our hearts in such a way that we could ascertain what was right and what was wrong and live our lives in accordance with all that God desires. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about this. It talks about the fact that we're to present our bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, which by the way means it is an act of worship to put ourselves on that altar of sacrifice. All that we are, not just our talents and our abilities, not just the sins that we've committed, but everything that we are is meant to be given to him. And that is how we enter into a relationship where we're no longer conformed to the spirit of the age or the spirit of the world that you could be translated spirit of age in the Greek. But we're transformed how? By the renewing of our mind. By God taking us back to what we were created to be and allowing us to exist as he desired for us to exist. You see, this is all about the spirit because the spirit's work is not, is not complete when you leave an altar. It's not done when you finish getting the Holy Ghost for the first time, but it is meant to be a covenant that you walk in every day of your life that perfects you and brings you into right relationship. Renewed actions and the renewal of the mind is going to result in a change of actions. You see, the spirit is productive. It produces, what does it produce within us? Right living. Yes. Right motives. If the only convictions that you hold in this life are the ones that are explicitly outlined in scripture or the ones that your pastor preached, you're doing it wrong. Because God convicts each and every heart with things that may take them apart from his presence and apart from his will and his purpose and his plan for his life. Their life. There may be things that you have personal convictions against for yourself that your brother or sister doesn't, and that's perfectly okay. That's the way it's meant to be. That's God's protecting you by his spirit from that which would defile you. The Bible says that without holiness, no man can see God. True holiness is us drawing near to God and saying, God, I recognize that I have nothing that I can glory in when I stand in your presence. I recognize that I have no holiness in myself, so I'm going to lay everything that I am down right now. My weaknesses, my inconsistencies, my insecurities, my sins, everything that would separate me from you, and I want you to conform me into your image. I want you to make me more like you. You know, we talk about holiness and talk about separation from the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. And sometimes I think we beat a dead horse by pushing that again and again and again. Holiness is of utmost importance. Without holiness, no man shall see God. But the other side of that is it's not just getting rid of something, but it says, I will receive you. So when we, when we get rid of the things of the world and draw near to God's presence, we become beneficiaries of all that is part of covenant, all that we, the blessings of being a child of the king. We have the peace that passeth all understanding, the joy unspeakable that's full of glory, the promise of eternal life. We have peace in the midst of the storm. We have hope that is unshakable and unmovable no matter what we're going through in life. You see, his holiness is going to allow us to live up to the full potential of what we can be. It's not God keeping us from something, but it's God pulling us into his presence and saying, I want you to be everything that you can possibly be. It's the most beautiful thing, and holiness only comes through his spirit. It's us reflecting his character. It's him changing us on the inside so that our external conduct and appearance shifts. Prayer changes things, and it brings healing. You see, the Bible talks about the fact that we can enter into a place of prayer where we don't even know what to pray, but there is a spirit of God that dwells within us that, that, that resonates with our own spirit and begins to speak in a heavenly language, and we can pray things that we don't even know what 
strongholds we're pulling down. We don't know what God is healing in our heart. I've been there, friends. When God breathed a prayer into my heart, and the moment I said that prayer, I hit the ground, and God's spirit just dwelt within, and God's spirit began speaking, and I didn't know what I was praying, but when I got up from that time of prayer, I knew he was healing. Things that were in my heart that I didn't even know were there. And I'm hastening quickly to close, because I know it's almost 8 o'clock. The last thing, spirit is productive, the spirit is um, transformative, and the spirit seals us. You see Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. It says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 4.30 puts it this way. It says, Whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. What does that mean? A seal is that which signifies who we belong to. You see, when a king wanted to put a communique through to a military general or to another leader, he would use his signet ring to, to press down into um, wax in order to seal that document so there was no question as to who it came from and who it belonged to and who was giving the command. Furthermore, it prevented tampering because it was very easy to tell if that, if that seal had been removed or that seal had been broken. You see, God's spirit is the seal on our lives. It is the seal that we belong to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It is the seal that says that we are his child, and it is the seal that says that we have not been tampered with, and that he has kept us by his power from backsliding. He's kept our feet from sliding. He's kept us unmovable on the rock of salvation. It demonstrates that we no longer are tainted by the things of this world, that he has allowed his spirit to cleanse and to purify, and we're not conformed to the spirit of the age. Furthermore, it says in that same passage that not only are we sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, but it also says that that spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. What does that mean? It means when the trumpet sounds, God is going to be looking for those that are sealed by his spirit. Furthermore, when that trumpet sounds, we're going to get the full, the full payout of our inheritance. What is the earnest? It's the simple down payment. What does that mean? The musicians come. It means that when I stand in the presence of God and I worship him, it means that when I lift my hands and worship on a Sunday, on a Sunday afternoon or on a Wednesday night, and I feel his presence and I feel his spirit and I begin to speak in a heavenly tongue, guess what? It's just a small taste of what we will sometimes, someday experience when we have the full payout of our inheritance. When we have the full inheritance given to us as children of the king when we stand in the presence of god almighty and worship his name for all eternity when we can sing with the heavenly choir holy 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 is the lord god almighty why don't we just go ahead and stand i don't know i don't know what somebody may have been going through this week i don't know if you may feel disheartened or perhaps you feel like you've made some mistakes along the way but there is a spirit here that is drawing you back into his presence there is a spirit here that wants to you to walk in covenant with God, and there's a spirit that wants to purify that which is within you and give you direction for those questions that you may be having in your life. So why don't we just lift our hands for a few minutes and let's thank him for his power. Let's thank him for his presence. Let's thank him for that purifying spirit that, that dwells deep within and directs our lives. Let's thank him for the fact that one day we'll experience standing in the presence of the great I am. We'll be able to cry out, holy, 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 and for the first time in the entirety of our experience, we'll feel what it is to be in the presence of his full glory and his full majesty. Let's thank him for his spirit. Let's thank him for his presence, Jesus.